except this young girl. Starting tomorrow, she'll be my disciple. All right, and now the times. Take off your skirt. I need to write a few mantras on your skin. We opened up this episode of Monster Kid Radio with the song Blood of King Jew from the band Necronomicids. That's from their self-titled album, Necronomicids. And you can find it on their website, necronomicids.bandcamp.com. Or you can follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's our website for our podcast, Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear and where we also sometimes mispronounce words. That song might actually be called The Blood of King Goo. Either way, it sounds cool, and you're going to hear it in its entirety at the end of the episode. I am your host and writer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. We still have memories of the 2014 H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon in our head. And for episode 90, we are going to bring you a recording of the one panel that I was on over the weekend. The panel was called Monsters Seen and Unseen, and I'm going to read to you from the festival program. Monsters Seen and Unseen. Exploration in the nature of monstrosity. Do we prefer our monsters to be completely alien or make us discover something about ourselves? With Oren Gray, Doug Bradley, Alan Kozowski, Pete Rollick, Derek M. Cook, and Brandon Seifert. Now, this panel was held in the EOD, or the Esoteric Order of Dagon, which was a redressed Hollywood Senior Center for the weekend. I placed two recorders in the room, one just past the table where we were all sitting, and the one kind of sort of in the back underneath a speaker. Here's the thing about the EOD. It wasn't just the panel. There was also an artist alley and a number of other things going on while we were doing our panel. So, yeah, there's a lot of background noise and chatter. However, I think there's still good content here and good enough audio, and I think you guys and gals are going to dig it. Now, before we get to that, why don't we go ahead and get through the business. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. You can find links to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, and our Live 365 channel. You can also find our contact information. You can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call us at 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. That's a voicemail line. Call us and leave us some feedback or write in and we'll do a special feedback episode down the line. Also, you'll find a link to our Facebook group where you can join the group and get involved with conversations with fellow Monster Kid Radio listeners and fans of these movies between episodes. We also have a Monster Kid Radio page. If you are a user of Facebook and you haven't liked the page itself, I'm going to ask you to go over there and do that. And also, if you're a user of Facebook, I don't know if you've noticed, but Facebook's kind of changed how they do their business. A lot of businesses and organizations who have a Facebook page even if they post something there and you like that page, you might not get that information because Facebook's got to make a dollar. I understand they want to sell advertising and ask us to boost or promote the posts. Monster Kid Radio's budget is better spent on buying classic monster movies for me or recovering from the Lovecraft Film Festival. So instead, I'm going to ask you guys and gals who use Facebook to share any posts that I put on the Monster Kid Radio page or even in the group but in the page specifically that would help us a lot because it gets more eyes on what we do speaking of things that we do we sometimes all get together in one place and go see a movie 
We call these Monster Kid Radio Crashes, and because I'm based in the Portland, Oregon area, I'm always looking for new movies or old movies getting released somewhere in the area that we can all get together and do a Monster Kid Radio Crash. I record from the event. I get people on the show that listen to the show or friends of the show. It always is a good time. Most recently, we did the three Santo films that Cinescopia brought into the Hollywood Theater. Well, we're going back to the Hollywood Theater at the beginning of May for Godzilla, the original Godzilla. This is happening, and we're going to crash the movie on May 3rd. Now, the Hollywood Theater's website has not announced showtimes for Godzilla, but this is the original Godzilla 60th anniversary digital restoration, so you know it's going to look good on the big screen, and it's going to be a lot of fun to see this movie with your fellow Monster Kids and your fellow Monster Kid Radio listeners. If you're a Facebook user, you'll see that I created an event for it already. Just look up Monster Kid Radio Crashes Godzilla. Go ahead and RSVP there. Say you're going to join us. If you see me there, and I'm easy to find, I'm wearing the Hawaiian shirt and the biggest grin in the room, I'd love to chat with you and maybe even record with you and put you on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Although that's not a requirement. I understand if you're not comfortable with it. But if you are, I'll put you on a future episode of this podcast. The podcast that was recently nominated for a Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Award. Go over to RondoAward.com and check out the ballot for the 2013 Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Now, this honors the best in movies, television, books, magazines, magazine covers, toys, and podcasts. We are in category number 23 in best multimedia horror alongside some awesome shows. So if you have not already done so, I'm going to ask you to head over there and place your vote. You have until Sunday, May 5th to send your votes in. The directions on how to place your vote are over there at rondoaward.com or again, follow the link in the show notes and you'll learn how you can get over there and help Monster Kid Radio put in a good showing on the ballot. I'm eager to get to this panel recording and share it with everybody. Again, the Lovecraft Film Festival was so much fun and I'm so thrilled that I have some audio recordings to help me remember the great time that I had last weekend. It was the best fest yet and big thanks to my fellow panelists who gave me permission to record them and put them on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And big thanks to Ray Jelinek, who took the picture that I'm using as the episode image of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. You can see that over at monsterkidradio.net or pull out your iPod and check it out right there. It might even be on your Stitcher app. Ray, thanks for letting me use that photo. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Since we're off to kind of a late start, I will go ahead and get started. Um, the pan- topic of this panel is monsters seen and unseen. I think we'll start out uh, everybody introducing themselves. My name is Oren Gray. I'm a writer. Um, I write about monsters a lot, both in my fiction and I do a lot of nonfiction about movies and you know monsters and horror stuff. So 
Um, I will pass it down this way and let everybody introduce themselves. Hi, um, my name is Brandon Seifert. Um, I write comic books. Um, the big thing that I've done, as far as what people know me for, is a book called Witch Doctor, which is a, uh, it's a horror medical drama that's published by Image Comics. So thank you, Derek. Um, in addition to that, I also uh, was co-writing the uh, Hellraiser comics with Clive Barker for the last year. Um, and I've done some Doctor Who and some other random stuff. Hi, I'm uh, Doug Bradley, and I mostly speak other people's words. Though, though I am a published author, so I don't need to feel too embarrassed in sitting up here with, with real writers. So we, got, so we have our own mic, so we can just take control of this anytime we want, right? Sure. So, uh, I'm Pete Rollick. Uh, I'm a writer of... Uh, God, Lovecrafting Fiction, and I best know him for the novel Reanimators. I'm Alan Kozowski, and I'm an artist, uh, primarily a horror artist, but I do a lot of science fiction too, fantasy. Um, I love to draw monsters, I guess that's why I'm up here. I'm just a big kid at heart. I never grew up. Godzilla was the first movie I ever saw back in the 50s. And, um, so I enjoy doing that kind of stuff, and I keep doing it because um, it's just what I enjoy doing, and uh, I have such sights to show you. I couldn't resist. Uh, my name is Derek M. Cook. Uh, I'm a writer as well. I've got some things coming out later this year, but primarily I'm a podcaster. I produce the Monster Kid Radio podcast, which is about uh, classic monster movies from the 30s to the 60s. We were just nominated for a Rondo Award. I also produce the 1951 Down Place podcast, which is a monthly Hammer Films podcast, where we were just nominated for a Parsec. So I guess that's why I'm up All right, well, um, Monster's a pretty catch-all term. I've had a lot of people ask me what the panel was about over the course of the weekend as I, you know, they saw it on the schedule. I think I guess I'll start out by asking everybody kind of what they think of when they think of Monster, the word Monster, what that kind of conjures to mind for everybody. Uh, uh, somebody should, yeah, somebody else should go first. Monsters to me are just, uh, can you speak after, please? Oh. Can you hear me now? Yeah. A little louder? Um, anyway, I, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, and that was when Corey Ackerman first started putting out his magazine, Famous Monsters. It was a, a golden time to be a kid, I'll tell you. They had uh, Steve Ditko with his comic monsters, Tales to Astonish, Tales of Suspense, all those old free Marvel comics. And uh, they really affected me. I really love that stuff. And um, uh, I, there was artists such as uh, I like to mention him because nobody seems to remember him now. But back in the early '60s, there was an artist, Sid Green. I don't know if anybody remembers him, but he worked for DC. Did a lot of great monsters. Um, but that's the kind of stuff I enjoy. And um, uh, when I, re I remember in the '50s, my mother, the first movie she ever took me to see, and this was in a maybe a Philly Grindhouse Theater was Godzilla, but when it first came out, it was not. Now, Raymond Burr was out of later, but that's the version I saw. And I just remember, when I saw that, I came out of that theater, I was a changed little boy. 
And I remember the, that, his growl, that great growl that they had, and the, the sound of his bang, bang as he walked across the ocean floor. I just loved it, and it really affected me. So, um, uh, kept me with this stuff ever since. Oh, well, I'll take a shot. Um, the question about what defines a monster. Um, well, okay, so there was a lot of abuse in my family. Most of it was literary. Um, as, <laughs> as a bedtime story, when I was three, my father would read me Rats in the Wall. Okay. So, thanks, Dad. There's no therapy problems there for the future. Um, but it really has set the stage. Um, I've been collecting uh, Lovecraftian fiction for 45 years now. Um, so it, a lot of what I think of when I think about monsters is set very early by Lovecraftian fiction. And to be honest, you know, I, I understand the universal monsters, but frankly, they're kind of sympathetic. I reach out to them because compared to Cthulhu and Shagots and elder things, these are, are still human. They're still relate. You can still have a relationship with Frankenstein or the Wolfman. It's not a good relationship, but you can still have one. Um, and then there develops this sort of um, idea that there is fear of the unknown represented by something that is completely inhuman. Then there's body horror, which, you know, frankly, um, Clive Parker does really, really well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's right where, where it's at. Um, David Cronenberg is another example of someone who does some really great body horror. Um, fear of, of, of yourself, your, your own internal body betraying and being different and not doing what you want it to do. Um, but once again, that's very relatable. It, it may be twisted, but it's still human. So where do you draw that line? What is a monster? What is not? It, it, I find it's, it's based on your, your ability to sympathize or relate to that character. And if you can't, then it's most likely monstrous to you. As opposed to something that you can... Yeah, absorb into the Federation. We'll put them on the starship in the front. And let them fly things around, right? So my wheelhouse is uh, populated with the likes of Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman. Uh, I love my classic monster movies, Universal, you know, all that stuff. I love it. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film of all time. Now, I like the other stuff as well. I mean, Mr. Bradley's work, of course, is fantastic. And I like a lot of stuff from the 80s. I'm an 80s kid. But when I look at my monster background, what the monsters mean to me, I always go back to the series of thin hardback books printed in orange and black from a company called Crestwood House that covered Frankenstein's monster, the Deadly Mantis, the Wolfman, Dracula, Mad Scientist, Godzilla. I mean, these are the books that I would check out from the kids' section of the library every weekend. Take home, read them, go back, check them back in, check them back out again, and read them again. I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies or read horror stuff growing up as a kid. Since this stuff is black and white, it was somehow deemed safe by my parents, so I just absorbed it, and that's where I live today, I guess. Most of the time. <laughs> yeah, and I'll actually take a turn real quick since he mentioned the Crestwood House books because I grew up with those too. And I've since become like a big, 
vintage horror fan. I watched a lot of 30s, 40s horror movies, but back then I'd never seen even one of them. I just read those books, and they had these evocative black and white, vaguely out of focus photographs, and you know, I would make up stories about what I imagined was happening in those photographs, and I guess, you know, it was amazing. There were these like mole people and uh, you know guys who were like half plant and crap like that and you'd see a picture and have no idea what the movie was about and so you it was incredibly evocative and incredibly magical to like look through like those Crestwood House books and books like them when you're a kid and you've never seen anything like this ever before so that's a lot of where My Love of Monsters came from too I think if we're talking about like early childhood experiences with monsters, um, mine was a little different from most people. Um, I kind of science fiction was my first love, and I kind of got into you know sort of the supernatural end of things later on. Um, but what really you know the first thing that was like you know kind of magical and, and had monsters and stuff into it that I really got into as a kid was the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Uh, the thing was, I had a very overactive imagination uh, to the point that my parents ended up pulling the plug on that cartoon with me because I was just losing too much too much sleep over it. Uh, specifically, there was, and it, you know, it's it's funny to say now, it was uh, there was an episode about a were chicken, <laughs> and it would bite you, and you would turn into this like six foot tall chicken with teeth. And you all laugh. I showed this. To, I showed, tried to show this episode to my last girlfriend, who is like a really big horror fan. She's really into it. She's into a lot of um, Argento, like a lot of stuff that I can't. I can't personally deal with. And she had to have me turn it off. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so for me, like it, it was, you know, my my early introduction to it was very different. But you know, back towards the question, you know, it is, you know, this is something I didn't have. I don't really have a ready answer to that because what is a monster? You know, that is a very good question. Can you have human monsters? Uh, in a lot of cases, um, in a lot of stories, you you do have people who can be considered monsters. But whether or not, you know, it, it's 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 such a broad term that I do think it's kind of difficult to find a definition that even everybody on this panel is going to agree with, let alone everybody in this room. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, it is absolutely a portmanteau word. I, I was just trying to think what my first association with the word is, and I guess I would tend to think of something uh, animalistic, like a like the Balrog from Lord of the Rings, or something, something, something enormous and and animalistic and nasty. But uh, yes, we apply the term to people, be they Nazis or serial killers or our children or our ex-spouses or uh, um, uh, spiders. Um, uh, anything, anything we don't like, we can we can hang with the label of monster. Um, then I know for myself when I knew I was going to do Hellraiser, the, one of the first things that I had in my head was, "Well, I'm going to play the monster in a horror film. That's pretty cool." Actually, when I got to the screenplay. Uh, and started working on the film, it was evident to me that Pinhead really is not the monster in the film. He's an impartial judge, really, and on what's going on. The monsters in the, in the movie are Frank and Julia. 
in the same way that Clive in Nightbreed, which I was also part of, the, the, whole, the whole point of Nightbreed, Fox had trouble with this basic concept, being studio executives, that the monsters were the good guys. Um, uh, and they just wanted to be left alone to be monstrous in that dark place under the cemetery. And the people were the, were what was, the human beings was what was causing the problems. I was thinking also that, of course, Boris Karloff was, is directly credited simply as the monster uh, in, in Frankenstein. And that brings us, or would bring me, to, to the idea of the sympathetic monster. And Karloff wrote the book on that. And I, I, I've always been intrigued that he said that throughout, throughout his uh, career, uh, a significant proportion of the fan mail he received was from children, from broken homes or abusive homes, because they absolutely understood the predicament of Frankenstein's monster. Didn't ask to be born, didn't ask to be put in this world, didn't ask to be a part of it. Um, and is uh, the, the old line that Marvel comics always used to use um, trapped in a world he didn't make um, I don't I, so I don't I, I don't know where that moves the conversation to I guess Monsters Unseen would bring us to Lovecraft and the the unnameable so someone can talk about the unnameable because you can't talk about the unnameable, <laughs> the unknowable. There are not words to express. Actually, for, for those of us who went to the, the literary breakfast meetings, there's an unlanguage. Unlanguage. It is not spoken by men or gods. Okay. And since it is not spoken, it is not, not currently spoken or never was spoken, it is an undead language. Michael Sisko told us all about it. Yeah, it's very cool. No, that's why it's undead. Neither alive nor dead must be undead. None dead language can turn alive. Yeah. Like some of my ex-wives. I'll bring this, I guess, to the title of the, uh, this panel, which I think is Monsters Seen and Unseen. And there's always this argument that goes on, is it better to leave these, in the movies, the monsters unseen and just imply and just leave the atmosphere build up? And there's validity in, um, to, both, to both ways. But I ask, why can't we just have it both ways in the same movie? Why can't we do it together? And I, the type of movie I'll argue about for that would be um, a movie such as Curse of the Demon. Um, which is a very atmospheric movie. It's an excellent movie. It implies, originally, it implied more than you would see. And then uh, after the film was made, I think um, the producers or somebody insisted the director add a monster into it. And a lot of people feel that the monster wrecks the movie, but a lot of people feel it makes the movie. And I think they both work either way, but if you've never seen the movie, you've probably seen the monster. Uh, which I've drawn, and you've probably seen this monster over and over in various places. But if you, but you might not know the movie at all. So what I'm saying, the, mo the monster in this case added a lot to that movie, um, even though it's an excellent movie without it. So you can have it both ways. I would say. Well, I would. Uh, I mean, people always use the, the statement you know, that the, 
the monster that you don't see is scarier than the one you do. And the, the basic underpinning of that is that what you suggest is more frightening than what you can show. But that doesn't mean you can't show anything, which is what a lot of people seem to interpret it as. It means you need to suggest more than you show. So no matter how much you show, no matter how many monsters you have, always make sure that you're suggesting something even bigger, even worse, even scarier than that. It's kind of how I always sort of interpret that. It, it's a hard balance to find, yeah. but when you do, it's sublime if you're like us. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it relates exactly to, to what is the, the perennial problem of trying to put Lovecraft on the screen. Uh, when, you're, when you're writing about a monster, you can do exactly what you were suggesting. You can always hint at more. Uh, e e e even if you are presenting something in words to the reader, you can always hint at something more, something intangible. Once you, once you make that uh, plastic, so to speak, I don't mean necessarily made of plastic, but once you put it on screen, it is what it is, and it and it and and then the hinting at more thing uh, becomes more problematic. Uh, I, I, I know for me, and I speak from experience of uh, childhood nightmares, which um, have thankfully ceased now, um, but, but continued for me into my 20s and into my 30s, which I, I've always vaguely hung the label of the heebie-jeebies on. Uh, this was an entirely abstract terror. That, that would that would arise out of specific and often very mundane situations to do with movement and non-movement uh, and and multiplying mistakes I can't be any more specific to you than that but it would lead me to the to the waking up in cold sweats uh, uh, moment and it, but it was entirely an abstract thing ultimately I think also always, the thing we can't quantify, the thing we can't get a hold of, the thing we can't name, the thing we can't draw, the thing we can't describe, is going to be the most monstrous, is going to be the most terrifying. What we don't know is, is always the thing that, that, that threatens us more than anything else. Um, that from for going back to, to, to Pinhead, this was touched on in the Q&A after I read Dagon last night that um, in, in, in the first Hellraiser movie Clive very successfully presents the Cenobites to you and then tells you nothing about who they are and even, even when they're telling you what they are we're Cenobites we're explorers in the further regions of pleasure okay um, uh, we're angels to some we're demons to other, others by the end of the movie, you're still really none the wiser as to exactly who the heck these things are and what it, exactly it is they do. Which is where the, the power of the character is, in, is, in, is invested, because whether it's, whether it's nature, we're told, abhors a vacuum, and I think imagination does too. Wherever there's a vacuum, imagination rushes in to fill it. There's a definite power to naming these things. There's a power to defining these things. And I think you kind of alluded to this in the Q&A as well. Uh, in the first Hellraiser, he's not called Pinhead. He's just a scary son of a bitch on screen. 
And the minute you start calling him Pinhead, that, that's something that would, that would have been a better name. Scary son of a bitch. Scary son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yours, take it. <laughs> but even just by calling him Pinhead, which is still a, a pretty creepy name, you kind of define him a little bit, and it takes a little bit of the power away. No offense. Well, and I've, I've always said that I, I have to hold in, in, in my head the, I mean, the, 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 the name of Pinhead was given to him by the special effects makeup crew. Because it was fine to have these anonymous Cenobites, but they had to have something to call us by, so they knew who the hell they were referring to when they were working on on the on the makeups in the in, in their workshop. They came up with the names and they they stuck fast. Fast. I I always had to to keep a hold in my head that as far as Pinhead, who is not called Pinhead, is concerned. We're getting back into languages that can't be spoken. Um, Pinhead, who is not Pinhead, has no notion that he is called Pinhead. In his own mind, he doesn't have a name. Nobody in the movies ever called him Pinhead. He was once referred to as a Pinhead by one of the characters in, in the sequels, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, that was something I encountered when I was writing the Hellraiser uh, comics. Was One of my notes on one of my issues was uh, you can't actually name these characters. You can't even have somebody referring to one of them by a derogatory nickname. In that case, I was going to use the, the nickname for the, the female Cenobite that they used on set, which was Deep Throat. <laughs> I was going to have, you know, kind of a, a more reverent character refer to her as that, and they were like, nope, no, you can't do that. Um, I think, uh, getting back to the question, I think, um, yeah, there's a power in naming these things, and then there's also a power over them when you name them. Uh, when you define, you know, the second, you know, the first Hellraiser movie I think was great because it, yeah, it didn't tell you anything about, you know, what was actually going on or, or who these people were or even if they were people or, or anything. Um, and then the second one, you know, that it is, you know, like, like Doug said, you know, imagination abhors a vacuum, and that includes writers' imaginations too, I think. Um, and, and the imaginations of everybody involved. And so in the second one, you get a lot more definition to, you know, you find out, you know, you find out Pinhead's name when he was a human, and you find out that he was human. Um, and I think that there is always going to be the tendency to, you know, if you set up something that's that's undefined, the tendency is always going to be to define it over time, and I think that's something that we've seen with Lovecraft a lot. And then I think another another impulse with monsters and things that frighten us is, if something frightens us, uh, one of the ways we process that is we turn it into something you can laugh at, uh, and that's something that you know we've seen with the Universal monsters, and then we've seen. Um, with Lovecraft, you know, the fact that there are plush Cthulhu's really bothers me, <laughs> like on an existential level. Well, I married a Shagoth. Yeah, yeah, and it's, and I'm, I mean, like, I love, I love comedy and stuff included in horror, and it's very difficult for me to write a straight up horror, because I am, you know, I do think it's a great, a laugh is a great palate cleanser in a, in a situation where you're being scared a lot. But I do think the tendency is always going to be to take it overboard and to overly, overly explain and overly define and then overly poke fun at the things that frighten us. Well, and there's a real tendency too to put rules on monsters, which I'm a big Mike Mignola fan, so I read a lot of Mike Mignola interviews, and he talks about this a lot. But the minute you put rules on something, it's no longer supernatural. It's a part of nature. Then it just becomes it becomes normal really quickly the minute you know how it works. 
and you know you, you can see it with vampires you, you get bit by a vampire and you turn into a vampire or you get bit by a werewolf or you know you vampires you put a stake through their heart and you kill them but you know when you go to folklore you're not going to find that as much it's it's all over the place and all sorts of crazy shit the vampires can do and turn into and be and whatever um and i was talking with someone earlier this weekend about like the original fright night like which is a pretty standard vampire movie until like about the last 20 minutes and then like people are just turning the skeletons for no reason and like there's all sort of and it's not explained and it's way cooler for not being explained like why what was that guy like the guy who's his Renfield basically what was he why did he turn into a skeleton for no reason right then who knows no one knows and it's a lot you know again you don't know what these things can do because they're not natural they're outside of nature so um going back to that um, by training I'm an ecologist and um, when you take that and you look at things like the monster manual and the, a dungeon system full of monsters from the monster manual or whatever you, you realize from an ecological point of view these aren't monsters these are animals that are part of the ecosystem now most of them we can discount things like the undead or golems. These, these individual things that don't breed, that are, are unnatural, those are your true monsters. But the, the uh, floating eyeballs and that, that reproduce, um, you know, bullets, land sharks, things like this, these are all just um, versions of, greater versions of animals that, that aren't are normal to what we think of as an ecosystem. But that's all they are. They're great white sharks, they're tigers. Just exaggerate. But the real monsters in the system are, are things that are individual, singularities, because they really shouldn't exist. Yes, we call this uh, the, the thing with no name. Right. The, the creature right. there's not another one like. Right, this is your monster. Everything else follows rules. Right. I'll bring it back to the seen and unseen again. And um, Doug mentioned something about a dream, the, the dreams that you had when you were a kid. And I think most people experience these. Um, I know I used to, and these are what I think they're called night terrors. Most, most of you have had them. It's where you're in a, a semi-wake uh, state where you're having a, a, a dream and it's, you're so terrified you can't wake up but you're afraid of something in the room with you, something that's hanging over you, and you're awake, but you're asleep at the same time. You see the room around you, there's nothing there, of course, but you feel there, there is. And maybe this is the kind of thing we like to catch in horror movies. It's unseen, but the fact that the presence is felt there is terrifying. And if you've ever had night terrors, and I think most people have, um, it's a very scary state until suddenly you'll snap yourself awake. And you realize, oh, there's nothing here, thank God. Well, I, that's, I think, a, a good argument for not showing things, even as much as I like monsters. I, I, I would um, chime with that, but I would just say that the point, the thing always also is uh, uh, you, you may snap awake and realize, oh, there's nothing here with me. But it's still in here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I had uh, this week. I had one of the scariest dreams that I've ever had, and it was just 
in the dream, it was the implication that the childhood that I remember was not actually my childhood, and that I had a completely different childhood that was far stranger and far scarier, and my memory of it had been erased and replaced by this much more normal thing. And I woke up, and that was just, it was, it was very strange and insidious and subtle. I've never had a dream like that before, but it was one of the hardest dreams to shake that I've ever had. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's what, that's what this reminds me of. You know, speaking of these, these terrifying nightmare-like dreams, um, I, I've had them as well. Sometimes they're accompanied by being really sick. You know, this, this fever dream kind of night terror thing. And to bring it back to something that Doug was saying about how night breeds about the monstrous humans and the monsters who just want to be left alone, I would have this recurring nightmare about David Cronenberg from that damn movie walking into my bedroom while I'm asleep on my back and he would bloom over me and say, you know what we do to sick directors? And would either strangle me or take a piece of saran wrap, hold it in front of my face and then hop loogies on me. And it was terrifying. To this day, if I ever meet him at a horror time, I'm convinced I'm going to pee myself. <laughs> I will, I will uh, open up to questions in just a second, but I wanted to, on something he said, one of my favorite uh, people who writes or draws either one horror of any kind is Junji Ito. I'm probably saying it wrong. He's a manga artist. He did uh, Uzumaki. is his best known thing. Yes. And his work, a lot of it, it, whereas like Lovecraft, a lot of it's about like external things intruding into normal reality. Junji Ito, a lot of times it's that you just wake up one day and reality is no longer what you thought it was. It's like what you said. And it, it was just, it just is different. You you know, people who were behaving one way are not behaving that way anymore, and there's no reason why. Um, you know, people are turning into things, there's no reason why, there's no explanation, it's just reality is not what you thought it was previously. Um, I have a 15-year-old a, a son, and um, I sat down with him, and, and we ran through all the, we had the box collections of all the Universal movies, and we watched those through, and he just loved them. <laughs> And then we moved on and to other things, and I showed him the blob, and he freaked. And, he, and I was like, what's, and his explanation is that there's nothing that you can reason with there. There's no motivation, it just consumes. And to, for him, that was what was wrong. And he, he just couldn't deal with it. Right, so I think we're kind of close, so I'll open up the questions. Um, I think you had your hand up first, back there in the back. So. Um, yeah, actually, it's, it's sort of touching on, on that, bringing together a lot of what you talked about, the, the relatability to monsters or how the Cenobites are monsters because their their human motivations have been alienated from them. Um, so how, and, and then the, the, the propensity of people to fill in the blanks of imagination. One of the first places we go with that is anthropomorphizing and starting to fill in the blanks with something human and relatable. Uh, uh, examples see most of God's humans have ever worshipped. So how do you how do you uh, keep the motivation alien? What techniques do you have for, for keeping the monsters monstrous and alien without just uh, relegating them to being uh, incomprehensible forces of nature? Uh, really, I think you know the the most important thing is just to keep in mind what you're doing and keep in mind what your focus is, because uh, yeah, there is you're, there there's going to be the tendency to anthropomorphize or to overly define. And I mean, I'm you know I write Witch Doctor is a horror medical drama where all the monsters are crossed with actual stuff from biology and medicine. So you have things like 
vampires have anticoagulants in their saliva and they have vasodilators and they have an anesthetic and things like that. So for me, um, you know, writing this book, it's been, you know, I have, I've had to keep in mind that what I am doing is overly explaining and overly defining these things that are traditionally not that well defined. And it's very easy to lose the fear because you feel like you have more control over something that you understand. Um, so, you know, one thing that I've had to do is just keep that in mind and make sure that the characters are still being put in situations with, that they can't control and then to kind of extrapolate and add new elements that people aren't used to. So we have, I think that's something that we've been very successful at doing is we have, um, you know, uh, we, we are both overly defining our monsters and then putting new twists into them that have not been commonly done before um, that I've seen. Um, and we've gotten a really strong reaction to both elements both the kind of imagination involved in, in looking at demonic possession and saying, okay, so this is, it's, it's not demonic possession per se, it's the parasitic larval stage in a demon's life cycle. And it has a free living adult and it has parasitic larva like bot flies. Um, and then taking the visual and making it really, really, really disturbing. Um, so yeah, so I do think I do think just mindfulness of that is is the biggest tool. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else has anything more specific than that. I'll just say, as an illustrator, uh, I have to stick with the descriptions in the story, which doesn't mean that I can't use my own interpretations. But it's one of the things I like about Lovecraft. I mean, Cthulhu, he he describes it just enough so that everybody recognizes it when it's drawn, but it's loose enough so that I can all the artists can put their own spin on it. And I've probably drawn that monster more than any other. He's probably my favorite monster, and he's fun. But um, uh, I think I've drawn him, uh, him and other artists so many times, but I've always put a different spin on it. It's not always the same Cthulhu. But I think that people always know oh, that's Cthulhu. So that, that's my spin on it as an illustrator. Uh, as an actor, I'm still kind of trying to process your question in in, in a lot of ways. But as as an actor, inevitably part of our part of our job is to humanize. Uh, it 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 has to be because we're human beings, and when that's what we're doing, and we're speaking, and, and we're we're creating characters, even if they are monstrous characters. Um, of course. One of the tools by which by which this most often happens is humor, I suppose. I mean, you you you. It's it's always the the, the obvious thing to say is that as an actor, whether you're playing Adolf Hitler or, or Stalin or however however extreme you want to get, there you always as an actor you have to sympathize. You have to find your way into the humanity. Because it's too easy, in a way, to simply say that you know Hitler or whoever you wish to to mention is a monster, and that's a convenient trash can to drop people in and say, therefore, we don't need to think about you anymore because we've got you labelled as a monster. But but it's always more complicated than that. Humour is more often than not the, the humanising element, um, and I guess Richard III's mantra to smile and smile and always be a villain. Um, 
uh, Hannibal Lecter is a smiler. He's a disarmer. But he's always going to bite your face off if you get too close. <laughs> um, uh, and Pinhead does the same thing, I suppose, because Clive did that thing of him wanting to draw you in because he wants to feed off you and your fears and emotions and, 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 and what's going on inside you. That is, yeah, that is one more thing. Um, I think uh, when you're combining horror and humor, um, however much humor it is, one thing I think you need to be really careful of is making fun of the monsters, because it's very, it's very easy to make fun of the monsters when you're writing something with monsters in it, uh, but it does really undercut them and really takes away a lot of their power. So um, something that I've done in Witch Doctor is very consciously not make fun of the monsters, or in any situation where the monsters are being made fun of, the monsters get their own back immediately and uh, kind of point out what a bad idea that is. The best horror comedies, I'm sorry, the best horror comedies are always the ones where the comedy comes from the characters, not from the monsters. The monsters are treated completely straight-faced as a threat, but the comedy comes, I mean, even Ghostbusters. The ghosts in Ghostbusters are actually completely dangerous and are completely played seriously, and all of the comedy comes from the guys, never from the monsters. So, you know. Do you have anything to add to the questions? Okay. All right, um, another question? Yeah. I have uh, something I'd like to say. Alan mentioned, you know, everything comes together and it works and it's scary and sublime. And I always come back to one scene in Tarantula, late 1950s, John Agar, and they have the hanging stage, whatever it was called, you know, you know full budget effects. And the tarantula is on this hillside, about ready to come down and eat, eat a whole bunch of horses in the barn. And, and obviously somebody's got a gravy basin and is, trying, is pumping air to get the tarantula moved and they tend not to move. And so, so the, see the studio music is, is swelling, and there's, there's a couple of beats where the tarantula doesn't move, and watching it as a kid, that, that, that was the most menacing scene of all of the movies, and I've since rewatched the scene, and it still works for me. That sort of thing is almost completely missing in, in CGI. Yeah. Well, well, animals, animals being being used to be monstrous on set are always hilarious. I've worked with rats quite often, uh, and the, these things are treated better than the actors. They're they're extremely well fed. They're extremely well cared for. They can't work for more than three hours at a time without being taken back to their cage and and, and allowed to rest. God love them. And they, they bring them out on, on set to be nasty and horrible, mean, vicious-looking rats, and they sit there and fall asleep because they're, they're perfectly contented with, with, with life, and they end up having to be poked and prodded to make them do something that looks faintly nasty. And, uh, they, 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 they never behave in life as, as you can make them do in an illustration or, or on, the, on the page. I, I had a scene in a... Uh, a, a, a comedy, horror comedy movie, I guess, called The, uh, the Cottage. And I, I had a, a huge mastiff dog that was on command, supposed to, to rear up and, and snarl and, 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 and growl and bark. And the, uh, the wrangler stood behind the camera and explained that she had a certain set of hand movements that would set the dog off. 
So we came to that point, she stands behind the camera and waves her arms and the dog sat down <laughs> and looked around and went... <laughs> uh, and and tries try as we might. Nobody could get this, this dog to, to behave monstrously. There was an owl in a, in a movie I did as well that was supposed to take off from a fence and, and, and swoop towards my face and take my eyes out. Nobody could persuade this owl to fly. It sat on that fence post and said, sorry, sorry, I want to speak to my agent. I want to renegotiate, I, I want to make a Winnebago. Animals are always, always fun. And of course, tarantulas are famously very placid monsters. They, you know, like, like most animals, I don't know whether this is true of the monsters in our imagination or not, but animals won't, by and large, won't attack unless threatened. That is something that I would like to see. I don't think it's a, you know, it's a fault of CGI. I think it's a fault of the people who are, you know, writing the scripts and then executing the visuals. But that's something I've always wanted to see in a zombie movie or something is, you know, it's a monster that might attack you. Or it might not. You might be okay. And I do think that that is, you know, that's one of the things I like about the Hellraiser movies is in this, you know, the Cenobites, it can be difficult to predict what they're going to do. In the first movie, um, they are kind of helping Kirsty for much of it, and then they're like, oh, no, fuck you. We're going to try to take you back with us. Um, but yeah, I do think that that is, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you're more likely to get from an actual animal that's acting uh, than you are from somebody writing a script, because I, I don't know if, I don't know, it may just be me, or it may be that it doesn't occur to people. One of the things that always made Ray Harryhausen one of the greatest monster designers of all time is that his monsters always moved and behaved like like animals, like they were real things. They would they would have little mannerisms, they'd swish their tail, they would, you know, look around, they'd like scratch themselves or something. I mean they would behave like a like a living creature rather than like a monster. Like a lot of monster movies, the monster behaves like a thing that is only there to serve the plot. It doesn't have an existence outside of whatever it's doing in the story. And his always did. His always seemed like a living creature that had a whole life outside of whatever the plot was. The plot just happened to evolve it. Well, do you remember what Eugene Lorry famously said about his monsters? He said, all your monsters die like opera stars. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Yes. This movie isn't Lovecraft again, but it's kind of a combination of visual horror and unseen horror. When I was growing up, honestly, one of the things that freaked me out the most was watching an episode of, for instance, Twilight Zone, the after hours, in which the woman goes into the building and, and she starts to hear voices and they're all mannequins. That's a great episode. At one point, the mannequin is in the table, and that's scared any thing. And the doll in Night Gallery. And since I read this, I've been bothered by this. Do you think the scene before you talked about this, called this concept the uncanny, in which you have something, you mentioned the story by Peter Hawking about a dancing part of the guy who builds a robot, very similar. But he says, as we get closer and closer to a person, but it's not a person, and you notice that. It both repels and horrifies us. And they said that that may be the reason with the movie The Polar Express why it failed. Because 
the closest animation to human, but still not there. And it freaked out the kids. Yeah. The, the term for that is the uncanny valley, where you're you're approaching, and everybody's like like the picture. It's getting better and better and better, and then there's a point where you've improved it so much, but still not quite human, and your your subconscious reacts that is alien. That is now crossed the line between being not real to real, but not human. And you reject that almost automatically. And we may be hardwired that way. Um, one of the questions we look at in, in um, evolutionary uh, brain structure is, why do humans see faces everywhere? And the simple answer is, it's a survival mechanism. If your prey, and you see the face of your predator hiding in the grass, and you run, you live. Whether you made a mistake or not, if you don't see the face and you die, you don't go on. We may be hardwired to see things that aren't there, but it might be protective. The same thing goes with the Uncanny Valley. That thing is not right. Um, when early CGI came out, a lot of people were complaining and getting headaches because subconsciously the shadows were wrong. It just wasn't perfect. And you couldn't pick it up, you couldn't explain it, but it was wrong. Even on these great simple things like buildings, everything was wrong. And you picked that up. And another thing on the like the mannequin episode you were talking about, any, anything like mannequins, dolls, puppets, um, anything that looks like it should be alive but isn't, but then is, like that's that's always scary. Like if it looks like it should be alive and then it isn't alive, like at all, a mannequin, those are always scary. And then when they are, that's really scary. And you can come back to the, uh, zombies and the undead again too. There are things that look like they should be alive but aren't because you know they're dead, but then they're moving. So that's I mean that's a fundamental eruption of everything we understand about how the world works. <laughs> Um, one of the evolutionary um, hypotheses for why hypotheses for why uncanny valley exists is um, that it's it's a protective mechanism against um, illness or parasites, um, and that you know part of the reaction is that you know it's setting off the same part of your brain that would react to if you see somebody who is who is very very visibly sick, and you don't want to be around them because that's. You know, that's an evolved thing that's that's protected generations and generations of of humans. Um, yeah, I tried to do Uncanny Valley in Witch Doctor in one issue, and it's one of the most difficult things to get an artist to pull off. It turns out because it is, you know, the the tendency. You know, uh, my collaborator Lucas Kettner, who's also here this weekend, um, he's an incredibly talented artist and an incredibly talented monster designer. But he likes his monsters to be really big and really monstery. And I was like, it was an it was an issue that had to do with fairy changelings. And I think um, there's a lot of concepts involved with fairies and with changelings, especially that are just terrifying. You know, it, there's this you know it's the idea that your baby is not actually your baby. It's actually this monster who might be here to prey on you or might just be taking advantage of you or, you know, you don't know. It depends on the folklore. Um, but so pulling off this idea that, that this is, and, and you can't tell, you, you cannot actually see whether this is actually your baby or not. 
Um, pulling that off in a comic was very, very difficult, and it, it took sitting down with Lucas and just having him draw in front of me while I criticized him, <laughs> which I'm sure he was super excited about. But it ended up being the, the that is the issue that people come up to me at conventions and things and say, that baby really screwed me up. Uh, especially when we reveal, you know, because we have the we have the version that has, has the glamour on it. Parents can't see through, but that basically looks like this animated baby doll. It looks its proportions are completely weird, and its parents are like, I, I, I think there's something wrong with it and her, but I can't tell what it is. And then once the glamour comes off, it's this horrifying amazingly awesome looking thing um, but that is you know then Katie Valley is I do think it's it's really difficult to pull off intentionally um, also in part because there is the tendency to when you have a monster the, you know the idea is to make it look like a monster it's not to make it look really really human but slightly not the end <laughs> I think we are running out of time, so like one more question, maybe, if anybody has one. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier Junji Ito and uh, Uzumaki, so his quite actually very well there. Uh, yeah. Are you familiar with another one uh, by Mr. Ito um, called um, Tomi? Yeah. Yeah, like, there's, there's your uh, taking something that is very human and then gradually showing how very not human Right, and one of the really interesting things about Tomi is that, uh, I don't know if anyone, if anyone is familiar with Tomi in general, okay, so Tomi is this beautiful girl who makes the people around her sort of become obsessed with her and either kill her or kill other people, typically. So she's the monster, obviously, although you're never, you're never given an explanation as to why she's this way or what she is. But also, even though she's the monster, she never actually overtly causes any of the harm. It's always this sort of radioactive effect that radiates out from her that makes the people around her behave in ways they would never normally behave. Uh, you can't kill her. Right, and you, yeah, you also can't kill her. Um, so she'll just grow back right. from whatever piece you've chopped off. Yeah, and then it's, he uses it in a variety of really interesting, creepy ways, but it's an interesting take on a monster because it's not a direct threat. Thank any, any last, yeah, that's a good, any last words from all of our, our panelists? No? <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts swirling around in my head. I don't know about the last word. I could just keep talking. There's some stuff. I loved what you said about the monster ecology. Um, I have, a, I have a kaiju project I'm working on. It's called Stomp Chasers. Hey! Oh, Jinx. Dewey, really? Okay. I would not be surprised. I would be, I would be like, oh, well, somebody had to do it. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, we have, yeah, stomping season. We should. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, it is the, um, and it is approaching them, you know, approaching kaiju as though they are just really, really large animals who, you know, sleep and, um, you know, and, and mate, and, well, yeah, uh, yep, yep, Rim, yeah, did, uh, did a lot of the, did a lot of the shtick that I was going to do, actually. Yes, yep, yeah, 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 but, I'm more feeling as if they're, um, Yep, me too. <laughs> <laughs>
I was gonna do the cat one through cat five, and then I was gonna call the largest ones big cats. And uh, yeah, yep. No, it's, but this is the problem with this is the problem with ideas is that everybody else is having them too. So yeah, we, we need to yeah right yeah. So all right. Yeah, on that on that that guy has six other projects. I mean yeah yeah me too. All right. That panel was a blast. It was a real treat. Doug Bradley was a real gentleman and smiled and was friendly and even shot me a look when I told my David Cronenberg story. So I had a good time. That made the panel for me. And I hope you guys and gals enjoyed it. Now, next week, we're probably going to have some more content from the Lovecraft Film Festival. Next time, we're going to be sitting down with Alan Tromp. I did an interview with Alan. He put together a pretty awesome presentation Lovecraft at the Drive-In. It was a presentation about classic movie posters, and these were movies that were either Lovecraft adaptations, inspired by Lovecraft, or had a connection to Lovecraft one way or the other. It was fun to sit in the classroom and watch this PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to share the PowerPoint presentation as well as audio, so you'll have to imagine some of the posters. And then I sat down with Alan outside the theater for about 20, 30 minutes and just chatted about Lovecraft and movie posters and that sort of thing. Alan's a great guy, and I think we'll try to have him on the show down the line you know, when we're not busy sacrificing our sanity for a three-day Lovecraft Film Festival. It was totally worth it. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Blood of King Jew that belongs to the band Necronomic Kids. It appears on their album, Necronomic Kids. You can find it at necronomickids.bandcamp.com. It appears in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody next week. I'll accept this young girl. Starting tomorrow, she'll be my disciple. All right, and now the times. Take off your skirt. I need to write a few mantras on your skin. (laughs) 